Who's trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin? Why are the Hollywood writers going on strike? Should anyone care? What makes someone think some sitcoms haven't aged well? What's the Lego loophole? I'll answer all of these questions and more on today's Random Thoughts. Hello and welcome to episode number 232 of the Random Thoughts podcast, spelled R-A-N-D-U-M-B, thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. I am now flush in Taylor Swift Record Store Day vinyl, thanks to all of the online shopping. But of course, it came as a price. There's payback new Lego items out that my wife wanted, but we can talk about that in a little while. More important, I believe, is the fact that on the international stage, it appears, at least it's being reported, that the Ukrainians are trying to kill Vladimir Putin. This isn't going to lead to any kind of escalation of what's going on here, is it? The report is that drones were out and about this being reported of course by the kremlin so i know there's about half the people listening that are like well that's fake news and of course the other half will take anything that the ukrainians say anything that comes out of Zelensky's mouth as fake news and the reality is it's a big mess it's a proxy war this is not simply something going on between Russia and Ukraine. If anybody thinks it is, you're totally missing out on what's going on here. But this as being reported by Just the News, justthenews.com, which are a fairly reliable outlet when it comes to finding accurate information, at least from my research, they seem to overall be on it from the factual side of things. Their story says, quote, the Kremlin on Wednesday said it shot down two drones that Ukraine sent to assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin. Quote, as a result of timely actions taken by the military and special services with the use of radar warfare systems, the vehicles were put out of action, end quote. The Kremlin said, as translated, no one was hurt. No material damage was caused. By the incident, the Kremlin says the drones were part of a planned terrorist act and an attempt on the president the day before this occurred, the day before Russia's Victory Day, which features a parade to commemorate the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. And anybody following along that believes that Ukraine is kind of overrun by Nazis would say, well, this makes perfect sense why they would pick this particular day. I don't have enough information to say I believe 100% that this happened, that this was an attempt, that this was from Ukraine, but it would make a certain amount of sense. 
And if so, it will cause an even greater escalation on things. And the United States being as deeply involved as they are, we should be very worried about that as American citizens. Because none of this could have been anything to do with the fact that the Biden crime family and the Clinton crime family very tied into Ukraine before all of this conflict started. No, can't have anything to do with that. Wasn't that where Hillary servers were supposed to be? Hunter with Burisma. Oh, yeah, there's nothing going on in Ukraine. Nothing to see here, kids. It's just a simple Russia versus Ukraine. No, no, it is not. So this will be something to watch because there's conflicts that go on all the time. Now, targeting somebody for assassination, that's a little bit different. And the use of drones, I am just absolutely amazed that this has not happened before, that there has not yet been a drone attack of some sort used for terrorist means here in the United States. Because it would seem to be the perfect tool for terror. Because you don't even have to be the suicide bomber anymore. You don't have to put the bombs on yourself. You can just fly them in. You don't even have to blow up. Which I would think would be a plus. If you're applying for that job, it's like, hey, would you like to be a suicide bomber? I'd be like, well, I've got a drone. Can't we just blow that up instead? With all of the large gatherings, Think Super Bowl, World Series, massive concert events, racing events. It wouldn't be hard to believe that a drone can be used for something like that. They're small enough usually to literally fly under the radar. So it'll be interesting to watch how all of that progresses as that technology. I mean, we're all worried about AI. AI is going to end the human race. Well, drones are a much more dangerous thing right now. Of course, AI could probably take control of the drones. And then maybe that would be a whole different story. But this is the problem with world news right now. Things like this. Well, there were a bunch of drones that were dispatched to assassinate Vladimir Putin. Do we believe it? Do we not believe it? The Russians are reporting it. So a lot of people right off the bat will be like, well, it's the Russians. You can't believe anything they say. Well, they were telling us that about Donald Trump, too. And it turns out he was speaking the truth quite often. They told us that about all the crazy people who said vaccines are dangerous. No, that's not true. So who do you believe? How do you know what to believe? It's hard enough when it's happening in our own backyard, but when it's happening halfway across the world and neither country can be trusted with the data, the information that's coming out of it. How do you deal with that? It is a no-win situation because there's no way to get 100% accurate information. So once again, you just have to go with your gut. And I don't know quite how accurate that is. Now, here in America, the big thing people are worried about and I mean, really, are is anybody worried about the fact that the Hollywood writers are going on strike? 
Would anybody really even notice at this point that the Hollywood writers are going on strike? What passes for entertainment today, I don't think is very good. And I know, old guy, which I don't believe I'm that old, but over 50 now, I grew up in a time, maybe a golden age for television and movies. And we didn't even have all the great special effects. I think maybe that is one of the reasons why things started going downhill so fast. The writers used to rely on the story to get people hooked. They would rely on the story to get people invested, to get people interested, to keep people coming back. The original Star Wars trilogy is a great example of that because once George Lucas started messing with it, when it got to the point to where CGI can do some things that he wanted to do, but he couldn't do back in the 1970s and 80s, hey, well, we're doing these re-releases. We can add this. And people were like, no, you're ruining it. You're ruining what it was that people loved about it. The original Doctor Who. Talk about a lack of an effects budget, but these stories were good. The storytelling kept people engaged. The performances by the actors and actresses kept people engaged. And entertainment was something that people enjoyed. Now, in the woke world, that all entertainment seems to want to, and I know that's a bit of a generalization, but most entertainment does seem to want to try to push some kind of political line now. They want to preach or they have to be woke so they can't use certain jokes that, well, it may offend somebody without realizing that anything may offend somebody. And when you go down that rabbit hole, the end result is nothing will ever be interesting ever again because you cannot make everybody happy at one time and most of the stuff as we'll find in a story that i have for you next most of what people are angry about isn't really that big of a deal if you have any kind of perspective on the world which again we don't because we really don't know what is truth and what is fiction whether it's in ukraine or russia or again right in our backyard the Hollywood writers have gone on strike before. I don't know if anybody noticed it then either. I think it was a little different back in the day because if your show wasn't on television, you noticed if you watch something every Tuesday night and it wasn't there on Tuesday or it was running reruns, you're like, ah, oh, what's this all about? I don't think most people watch anything that way anymore. They log in to their Apple TV account or their Netflix account or whatever it is. They find a series to watch and then they watch it. I'm somebody that doesn't even like to watch a series if it's going on week by week anymore. I have the binge mentality. I get it. Some people like that. Some people don't. I blame Fox and 24 
the great Jack Bauer adventures. Kiefer Sutherland, absolutely great in that. And I will say, Kiefer Sutherland's latest rabbit hole is pretty good. But I think it's another case of where the whole series is going to wind up being eight episodes, which, okay, I get it. Maybe that's enough for certain stories, but it certainly doesn't help to keep people engaged when the time between season one and season two is about a full year. But when 24 came out, and that was the whole concept of what they were doing was, hey, this whole story takes place in a one-day period, and we're going to give it to you minute by minute. Of course, those commercial periods disappeared somewhere because you have to have commercials on television. But the story took place overall in real time, and it was a really cool thing to be like, well, hey, I just want to watch this in as short of amount of time that I can. And my wife and I started going, Hey, we'll just wait back then. I mean, the DVRs, I don't know were DVRs even out when 24 started. I don't believe they were because I remember going after the season, avoiding everything for the season, getting the DVDs and then watching the series over a weekend. It was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's when the binge mentality, I think, really started. And then as more and more things were available, when streaming became big, if you were to start watching a series, as we did with a few things like One Tree Hill, with the OC, with a bunch of different things that we had never seen before, well, you don't watch an episode then and wait a week to watch another. You might watch two, three, four of them a night, and you can watch one series for a few weeks, whatever it takes for the whole thing to be consumed. And that is a much more normal way for people to consume things now. So they don't have the week by week. You don't really notice that there's a writer strike going on. When a whole series is done and it's put out there, that's when people usually start watching. So it's a less of a hit. When somebody goes on strike, when a group like the writers go on strike and we live in a time of media oversaturation where we have so many choices on what to watch that you just pivot to something else, whether it's professional television, whatever that means now, something put out by a major studio, or you just start watching more YouTube or Rumble or something like that, because there's always something there for you to consume. So I don't know if the writers are going to really benefit from what's going on here, but I did think it was interesting. Some of the stuff that the writers were upset about. This comes from the website deadline says, quote, the decision was made following six weeks of negotiation with Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney, Discovery Warner, NBC Universal, Paramount, and Sony under the umbrella of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The WGA Negotiating Committee began this process intent on making a fair deal, but the studio's response has been wholly insufficient given the existential crisis writers are facing. 
Mm-hmm. Sure it is. It says the company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce. Well, see, there's your problem, the union workforce. And their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing. Well, this may also be because the writing has sucked. From their refusal to guarantee any level of weekly employment in episodic television to the creation of a day rate in comedy variety to their stonewalling on free work for screenwriters and on AI for all writers, they have closed the door on their labor force and opened the door to writing as an entirely freelance profession. No such deal could ever be contemplated by this membership. So, what we are hearing from the Writers Guild or whatever they call themselves is no, no, we can't have people being paid for the work they do. They can't be treated as freelancers. No, we have to be guaranteed. And uh, there is no guarantee in life. Sorry. This is maybe a very old way to look at things, but this union, when it comes to the writers, I don't know. I think if somebody comes along that wants to be a freelancer that produces good content, they should be allowed to. They don't shouldn't be forced to join the writers union. And this concept that the artificial intelligence bit I thought was interesting because there's been a lot of talk including here on random thoughts about artificial intelligence. Our buddy CSB produces a show every week, pretty much AI.cooking about what's going on in the artificial intelligence world. And in this case, the I'm like, well, what do the writers want when it comes to artificial intelligence? Because I can see a time not too long in the future where artificial intelligence is going to be more than capable of producing television scripts. It may already be at that point with a little bit of editing, with a little bit of massaging from a human being or a meat bag, as our buddy CSB likes to call them, to take what the artificial intelligence spits out and just whittle off those harsh edges. It says, on the topic of AI, the WGA, So this is the Writers Guild, the Writers Union. They wanted to, quote, regulate use of artificial intelligence on MBA-covered projects. AI can't write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as source material, and MBA-covered material can't be used to train AI. So the Writers Union is saying blanket, no, can't use artificial intelligence at all to do anything. And I don't know how you enforce this. This is kind of like making TikTok illegal in the United States. It's nearly impossible to enforce. This is like saying only people over the age of 18 can use social media. Almost impossible to enforce. The writers don't want AI to be used, but how does the studios how does the group that is representing 
the people that give the work to the writers, how do they know that the writers aren't using artificial intelligence to produce what they are turning in? I just saw a video yesterday on YouTube of a writer that was showing one of these AI platforms that I had talked about not too long ago, pseudo right, and showing exactly the capabilities of this AI brain, if you will, where it was fed a series of points. So you go through and you're like, well, here's 12 points. One, here's our main character, Joey. Joey is old and befuddled. You know, two, Joey becomes president. Three, Joey messes everything up. Four, the world turns on Joey. And you give it these kind of points. And then it fleshes out and it writes the prose. The words that is, not the P-R-O-S, P-R-O-S-E. It writes the prose. And this is something that if you were to take an AI and you were to throw any sitcom into it, it would recognize the characters and it could just write you more episodes featuring those characters in the style that was already written. And I can see why the writers would be paranoid about that. And they can say that AI shouldn't be used in the creation of anything, but there's no way to guarantee this. There's no way to prove that writers aren't going to just get lazy and sit back and just let the AI write their homework for them. I mean, do you think kids are the only one that are letting AI do their homework for them? And this is going to be a very interesting thing, I think, moving forward, because I'm not 100% sure how most of these writers' rooms or how these things happen, where the ideas come from. But if they have a connection to the Internet, they're sitting there in that room. They could be using an artificial intelligence to turn in all of these ideas for episodes, all of these scripts. And there's no way for the big, bad production companies. And I'm not a huge fan of the Amazons and Apples and Disney's. But the reality is the artificial intelligence angle of this is going to play a part one way or another and there's no way for the studios to know whether or not that the writers are using ai and i understand why the writers are paranoid about ai because it's very close to having the ability to do their job and maybe do it better than them and the end result might be something more entertaining but as I have talked about here, this AI, this deep fake, this ability to create things, to create visuals, to create audio, we're not that far away from an artificial intelligence being able to create a sitcom, to be able to write the scripts, and then you don't need actors and actresses, it'll just create them and create the video and it'll be like wow look this is a sitcom as a human being watching it you won't even know that those actors and actresses they don't really exist that's just a computer putting the video together and it's a computer writing the script with the ability to do a lot of this stuff 
I see a whole new way of content being produced that is so targeted to each individual because this ability will be there to write a script and to put it on your screen in front of you and let you watch it like you would anything you're watching on television today. Not that anybody watches on televisions, right? You're all watching on your little screens, on your phones, on your tablets or whatever. But I think we're going to get to the point where there will be a service where you'll log in. And if you want to, you'll be like, well, I want to see a story about a guy that does this. And it'll ask you maybe a few questions and you will give it the information and it will create a whole series just for you to watch. Nobody else may ever watch this series except you because it's going to be targeted for exactly what you like. You want the main female in it to be tall and blonde. Boom, you can have that. Whatever you want, you just punch in and your computerized, AI-ized entertainment will be there for you to enjoy. And again, it will probably be better than what the Hollywood writers have been producing as of late because they've long lost the concept that people are there to be entertained and entertainment sometimes will rub people the wrong way. Now I've seen these kind of articles pop out before. So this was no surprise. This was on a website called Collider, which, you know, it's garbage media, but I thought this was interesting because this article was 10 sitcoms with content that hasn't aged well. Ooh, I know it sounds so nefarious that there's 10 sitcoms content that hasn't aged well. So I went to look at the list and oddly enough, I only saw nine shows listed, but okay. Collider, maybe they don't know the difference between nine and 10, but out of the nine shows that were listed, I've watched every one of them. The series in their entirety and have rewatched them all since COVID started, since I started having the issue with my eyes where there was a lot of the television just sitting around while hoping for the eyes to get better. And they may at some point this year, if they can inject some crazy stuff in, but it's been six years. And that means over the last six years, since about the time Donald Trump was elected president, I have watched these sitcoms, which we can go down the list and then tell you what they say about each one. Friends, Frasier, Married with Children, Home Improvement, Scrubs, Two and a Half Men, Two Broke Girls, How I Met Your Mother, which oddly I've been watching now, and The Big Bang Theory. These are the sitcoms that haven't aged well. Now, it's funny. Because you look at some of these, the Big Bang Theory just ended in 2019. So four years ago, but it hasn't aged well. How I Met Your Mother ended in 2014, less than 10 years ago. Two Broke Girls ended in 2017. Again, six years. So saying they haven't aged well is interesting. We see how quickly our culture is changing, and that can't be healthy. It really cannot be healthy to have a culture having a whiplash moment 
where things that were mainstream are now considered problematic. One of the left's favorite words, two and a half men ended in 2015. So again, that is less than 10 years in the past. Scrubs ended in 2010, a little over 10 years. Home Improvement is a little bit older, but also one of the most wholesome shows. If you watched it, as far as I remember it, Married with Children. Okay, we'll get into that. That ended in 1997. But Frasier, I was very surprised to see on this list, ended in 2004. So that ended about 20 years ago, but a reboot is in the works. And the same with Friends, ended in 2004, but still one of the most watched sitcoms on any of the streaming services. But according to Collider, these these sitcoms should remain in the past with the tagline on here. And I would again say, well, considering what is being released today, these sitcoms will live for a long, long time. And I'm really surprised Seinfeld isn't on this list. Maybe that was what was supposed to be number 10. But we'll take them here just to see what they say. Nine friends. It says it's a timeless classic, possibly the most iconic sitcom in recent memory, centering around the romantic and professional lives of six 20-somethings in New York City. Friends became the television equivalent of comfort food, a status it maintains today. So they talk it up. I like that. I like this overall arrangement where they talk it up, they say nice things, and then they continue with, however. Friends has its fair share of questionable content from its lack of diversity to its treatment of lesbianism and bisexuality to its issues with fat shaming and sexual assault. The show is infamous for its many storylines that have aged like milk under the sun. Friends is still a highly rewatchable and entertaining piece of television, but there's no denying it's a product of its time for better and worse. I mean, now there's a whiplash moment just in the description of this. And I know this is bad journalisming and it's not really a journalist's uh, journalistic site, if you will, but it's lack of diversity. I mean, again, this is why the lack of diversity. Oh, there's a bunch of white people. We're telling a story about a bunch of white people. How dare they? But Nobody mentions this on shows, which were great back in the 70s and stuff like Good Times and the Jeffersons. Nobody's like, well, you know, there's just way too many black people in that show. Sometimes the shows are set in a certain place. And sometimes the demographics maybe aren't that wide for what some people like. But if the story rings true, I don't care either way. I've watched plenty of shows that have a majority of a black cast that were very entertaining. Everybody hates Chris, one of them. Blackish, great show as well. But in this case, I mean, Friends was just way too white, obviously. But if you fast forward to today, they remade the How I Met Your Mother with How I Met Your Father. And it is like a way too diverse cast that just does not meld together. And the writing is horrible. So it doesn't work. But, you know, at least they checked off the diversity checkpoints i mean i guess that's what's important now not being entertaining but you just have to check off those diversity points and then you're good 
Frazier is next on the list. It says Kelsey Grammer turned his Emmy-nominated work in Cheers into an Emmy-winning role. In the highly successful spinoff Frasier, the show follows the title character, a psychiatrist and radio host living in Seattle. Well, I wish he was living in Seattle today. And the lives of his father, brother, and friends. Frasier was near universally acclaimed throughout the 90s and early noughties. That's an interesting way to put it. But several storylines are somewhat uncomfortable today. Casual homophobia wasn't rare on Frasier. But the show also went out of its way to shame Roz's life as a career and sexually freed woman. Niall's years-long crush on Daphne also led to several awkward instances that might find troublesome in a post-Me Too era. Hopefully, the upcoming Frasier revival will handle things better. Yeah, I like the part that the first thing they call out is the casual homophobia wasn't rare on Frasier. Now, I'm not sure if the person writing this for the great uh, journalistic collider, which, uh, let's see, this would be written by David Caballero. I don't know if David is aware that John Mahoney, the guy that played Frasier's father, that David Hyde Pierce, the guy that played Niall's brother, two of the main characters in the show, were gay. I don't know if he's aware that Dan Butler, the guy that played Bulldog, the sports guy from the radio station, also gay. A majority of the cast on Frasier seemed to be gay. So if there was a casual homophobia going on, I think maybe you're reading something into this that just did not exist. Or maybe it's just the actual gay men that have the casual homophobia going on. I don't know. Come on, Collider. You can do better. Or maybe they can't. That's the problem. Married with children. Now, this was a show that was meant to offend. It was written in a very trashy way. I don't think anybody is surprised about that. That was the whole point of the show. That was where the comedy came from. And I guess they get that a little because they say some sitcoms designed to be politically incorrect and inflammatory, such as the case with Married with Children. Emmy nominee Ed O'Neill starred as Al Bundy, a depressed and sexist woman shoe salesman married to a materialistic and manipulative woman played by Golden Globe winner Katie Seagal and raising two slacker children. Featuring numerous misogynistic jokes and problematic humor. There's that word, problematic humor. Married with children was crass. Well, yeah, that's why it was fun and controversial. Even at the time of its original airing, the show was at the center of a massive controversy when Terry Racolta, a Michigan woman turned activist, began a much publicized campaign urging advertisers to drop the show. In all fairness, the show is designed to be vulgar, offensive, and provoke audiences, changing the way audiences consumed and television treated in the sitcom genre. But many will still find its brand of insulting comedy quite unbearable. Well, then don't watch. That's the answer. Don't watch. And you seem to understand that it was done intentionally to provoke audiences into thinking, oh, my God, we can't have that. But you're still putting this on a list and saying, well, which should be left in the past? Why? Don't you want people thinking? I guess not. And that's the problem. 
Next on the list is Home Improvement, which ran from 91 to 99. It says Home Improvement was Tim Allen's ticket to fame. The show centered on Tim, the tool man, Taylor, the host of a home improvement show called Tool Time, raising his family in suburban Detroit. I mean, today, if they were to do that, you'd have to be really well armed. Patricia Richardson started as Jill, Tim's loving, homely and dedicated wife. Wow. Now that's just rude. That is just absolutely rude, Collider, but I guess that's okay. I guess that's okay to be rude to Patricia Richardson. Although the show, it says, was a ratings juggernaut and attracted considerable critical acclaim, it was also known for a few unsavory moments. Perhaps the most infamous is using a scantily clad model whose main job was to look hot while introducing each episode of Tool Time. Tim is also a prominent example of toxic masculinity, particularly when advising his three teenage sons. First off, the scantily clad model. Has anybody ever watched Tool Time? I mean, Home Improvement, which Tool Time, well, it is the show within the show. And when Tool Time, the show within the show starts, the tool girl goes out there, whether it was Pamela Anderson, who played the part early in the series, or if it was Debbie Dunning, or is it Dunning, that played the role later on. Scantily clad, I guess, in their terms means wearing shorts from just a quick google image search it's like shorts or a skirt with a often long sleeve polo type shirt there's uh, nothing scantily clad about this so again either they didn't watch the show at all david caballero obviously a horrible journalist publishing this article and really not even a journalist but again getting it wrong and I think it's hilarious that you call that out and then say that Patricia Richardson was homely. It's it's a horrible thing. Come on. I don't understand. Isn't that even more offensive because you're doing that in real life? You're not doing this in the guise of a character in a television show. And the toxic masculinity that they speak of just is, you know, that men should be men and women should be women. I know that is a very very dangerous concept in today's society. It should not be. Scrubs 2001 through 2010 that came in next on their list. It says few shows capture the essence of the noughties as perfectly as Zach Braff's workplace sitcom Scrubs set in a fictional teaching hospital. The show chronicles the everyday lives of a group of medical interns led by the highly imaginative daydreamer jd dorian and i think it's interesting because the show ran what nine or ten years they were only interns the first year so you're kind of did you only watch the first few episodes did you not really understand what you're writing about but this is the internet as a whole i've been telling you this for a long time believe nothing you read on the internet because people are allowed to throw garbage out there and it somehow makes its way into the public subconscious like it's true 
He says Scrubs is perhaps the best example of a show that used casual homophobia as part of its everyday humor. No other shows feature more LOL, that's gay jokes than Scrubs. The show also features numerous instances of transphobia, racism, and misogyny, making it a somewhat difficult viewing experience for modern audiences. A Scrubs reunion may happen soon, which will hopefully include fewer of these harmful instances. Okay. The gay jokes. I just want to know who's really being made fun of when it is straight guys normally that are being called gay and they're very worried about that because it's an attack against their masculinity. Who is really being made fun of here? Is it the gay guys or is it the straight guys who are so worried that they may be seen as gay? I think that's an important distinction to make. And maybe I'm getting it wrong. It's possible. I don't remember any transphobia in Scrubs. And this is a show that I just watched right before How I Met Your Mother. I don't recall any transphobia whatsoever. And the racism thing I find to be hilarious because the two main characters in this show, Zach Braff, and Daniel Faison, which I've noticed they don't even mention Daniel in this little blurb because he wasn't important at all. But they were the best friend doctors in the show, and one's white and one's black. And they made fun of racism throughout the whole show. And they're still like best buddies in real life, which is one of the reasons why Scrubs will probably be coming back. You may have seen them if you, sadly, if you see commercials. They are doing a commercial, I think it's Verizon, for one of these things with uh, John Travolta in it now about their internet connectivity or something like that. But there's absolutely nothing that would be considered racism. This is also the problem because it was part of the show, again, because one was white, one was black. It is, again, you cannot have characters differ. You cannot show scenes where they're trying to explain the world around them because there are racist people in the world. But showing this on television is not racist. The concept that Archie Bunker shouldn't be allowed to be a character in today's world because he was such a horrible person, you're missing out on the fact that that's a teachable learning moment. There should be bad people. When it comes to fiction, there should be bad characters on television because people then can understand, well, this is what's good. This is what's bad. If you pretend that none of it exists, you certainly don't make it better. But this moron, and if he's going to call uh, Patricia Richardson homely, well, I'm going to call David Caballero a moron for not understanding the world around him. But yeah, I don't know anything in Scrubs that I thought was racist. And I don't know where they're picking up the misogynistic thing because the main character, JD, was the antithesis of the Tim Allen toxic masculinity character from 
the home improvement, the character that Zach Braff played on Scrubs, not the most masculine character, which is why the other guy, Dr. Cox, which was the, you know, the main guy, the teaching guy is and played absolutely, absolutely perfectly by John C. McGinley would always refer to the character by a girl's name, much to JD's chagrin. But again, you can't have that today. You can't have anybody being mean to somebody because it might trigger somebody. It's all absolutely insane. Now, the next show on the list, Two and a Half Men, I believe was another show that was intentionally trying to push your buttons. They say Charlie Sheen was once the highest paid actor on television thanks to the overwhelming success of his CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men, co-starring John Cryer. The show revolved around Charlie Harper, a narcissistic and womanizing jingle writer living in Malibu whose hedonistic life gets disrupted by the arrival of his newly divorced younger brother and his young kid. Most of Two and a Half Men's humor centered on Charlie's sexual escapades, which involved him treating women like disposable objects. The show denigrated in later seasons using more offensive humor and turning its characters into caricatures of their original self. Sheen departed the show following his very public meltdown, with Ashton Kushner replacing him. Alas, Kushner's arrival did not improve the show, and Two and a Half Men ended with one of television's worst series finale so but the worst thing they can say is that charlie was a womanizer and they told dirty jokes again i don't understand why that's a bad thing if you don't like that type of humor you don't have to watch it but i know from living over 50 years that there are plenty of people who are womanizers and tell those kind of jokes and i believe if you can again pick up on the subtext, something that this moron, David Caballero, maybe can't, that it was making fun of guys that are like that. I don't think it was glorifying the whole concept, but again, maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, let me know, Darren, D A R R E N, at randomthoughts.com. Two Broke Girls, which was a little bit of a shorter run series. They say any show conceived and created by Whitney Cummings and Michael Patrick King was bound to be controversial. However, two broke girls crossed taste and decency lines with its numerous problematic storylines. There's that word again, problematic. What makes them problematic? That you don't like them? Then don't watch. That's the answer. The show starred Kat Dennings and Beth Bears as two down-on-their-luck waitresses struggling to launch a cupcake business while working at a Brooklyn diner. Vulgar, often deplorable, and featuring multiple problematic storylines and jokes, Two Broke Girls was designed to be polarizing. Oddly enough, on a side note, one of the few sitcoms my wife will admit to enjoying. So don't tell me that the vulgar, often deplorable jokes are something that only the horrible, toxic masculinity guys enjoy. The show used racist humor, I don't remember that, harmful stereotypes, sexist jokes, and casual homophobia. How many times can somebody say casual homophobia in a show? And let's remember, it even existed in Frasier, where a majority of the cast seemed to be gay, 
as part of its everyday language. No episode went by when two broke girls didn't use a problematic joke. Problematic. The worst part was two broke girls wasn't even funny. Tell that to my wife. Only sitcom that I can remember that she thought was funny. If it survived for so long because of Denning's Bears and impressive supporting cast that also included comedic heavyweights like Jennifer Coolidge. Again, not everything is written to everybody's taste. That doesn't mean you say don't watch it. You just watch something else. You can go to PBS and you can watch whatever it is you like. You don't have to watch the sitcoms. Next on the list, number two, How I Met Your Mother, the one I'm about halfway through right now. It says, uh, How I Met Your Mother seemed destined to take over the slot Friends left after its 2004 ending. The show featured a unique premise, presenting itself as a long and winding tale from a father to his teenage children about how he met their mother. While still overwhelmingly popular, How I Met Your Mother has become infamous for what once was its main source of success, the character of Barney Stinson. I mean, I'll give him that. Barney's character, absolutely fantastic. They say played to perfection by the show's breakout Neil Patrick Harris. Barney is a womanizing executive who treats women like disposable objects and manipulates them into doing what he wants. Worst of all, his friends not only ignore his antics, but even indulge them at times. Harris received acclaim, including several Emmy nominations for his role, but Barney's treatment of women has become questionable at best, especially in a post-Me Too era. And while still enjoyable, How I Met Your Mother is hard to watch now, especially the many Barney scenes that have aged terribly. The show's terrible ending has also contributed to the overall decline of its once mighty popularity. Well, spoiler alert, it was not a good ending. But Barney, I mean, don't you want to mention that Neil Patrick Harris guy that played the womanizer that you hate so much as a gay actor? I mean, you're probably one of these guys Mr. Moron writing this, David Caballero, that doesn't think straight people should play gay people on the screen. So why don't you tell that to Neil Patrick Harris, who as a gay guy played one hell of a funny womanizer. And just like the Charlie Sheen character in Two and a Half Men, it was played in the form of a character, something that you know about because you mentioned it already in one of these show descriptions. Do you not understand taking something and blowing it up, taking a little personality quirk or two and blowing them up to the ridiculous because of the humor factor, because of the entertainment factor? That's why television shows were entertaining. If television shows just showed normal, stupid people doing the normal, stupid things they do 24 hours a day, nobody would watch. This guy's an idiot. And I know I'm giving this whole article way too much publicity. So I'm probably an idiot too. I'm not going to disagree. The number one show on this list, The Big Bang Theory, ran from 2007 to 2019. Let's see what they say about this. No sitcom was more successful in the 2010s than the CBS Big Bang Theory, revolving around a group of scientist friends whose guarded dynamic gets disrupted by the arrival of a new and spirited neighbor. Well, that's like on episode one. So I don't know how much that's showing you the dynamic got interrupted because we've never seen the dynamic any other way, but you're a moron writing for Collider. So I'll give you 
a little bit of leeway. It says the show popularized the concept that smart is the new sexy. It lasted 12 seasons, introducing new characters throughout its run, becoming more of a traditional sitcom focused on relationships than on the boys' careers. Well, can you call them boys? That's kind of rude. I think they're men. What do you mean boys? The Big Bang Theory featured an egregious amount of racist jokes. I know, let that sink in. For everybody that's watched The Big Bang Theory, you're like, what? The character of Raj is a walking punching bag with his friends mocking his accent and culture numerous times. Raj, if you've never seen the show, is Indian. Sheldon's mother, Mary, is also a raging racist, mocking other people's religions, sexual orientations, and overall beliefs. Uh, They played her, of course, as the devout Christian, and of course was played by an actress who I would bet has no respect for Christianity. So who is really to blame here? Again, this is a character of a person, and that is what entertainment seems to be. It says the show excusing his awful behavior by blaming his lack. Oh, Sheldon himself, I'm sorry, is a terrible person with the show excusing his awful behavior by blaming his lack of social skills, Uh, meaning he's really he's on the spectrum and doesn't know how to interact well with people. But maybe you should blast people that are on the spectrum, too. Maybe that's what you should do, Mr. Moron, writing this article. The Big Bang Theory features a wonderful cast that elevated every script, even the weakest, but the overwhelming amount of stereotypical jokes is often too much to make it enjoyable. Again, I would say that you don't understand comedy, David Caballero, Mr. Moron, because stereotypic things are what make their way into comedy. That's what makes them funny. There's a modicum of truth, uh, and then it's blown up, and that is what makes it funny. But I don't expect you to understand it because you're writing for Collider. But if you've watched any of those shows and you disagree with what I've said, I just thought it was funny that it's like usually when I see these things, I'm like, I haven't seen 90% of the shows you talk about. All of them here I've seen, and I agree with each and every example and why. This guy doesn't think they should be around anymore. I would highly recommend watching all of them over again. And one last thing before we hit the value for value segment of the show. I talked about record store day on the last episode and I bought some vinyl. There was some Taylor Swift, some Warren Zevon, Frank Turner, Roddy James Dio, Madness, just way too much vinyl. And of course, the payback for this of buying all the vinyl and I didn't even see this coming, was it's Star Wars, May the 4th week, which means Lego's coming out with some new Star Wars sets, and my wife's obsessed with Lego, and she wanted the Lego sets, and now it's like, well, you bought that vinyl, so I get to buy the Lego, and Lego's very hard to get a good deal on, but I found the Lego loophole, I think. I believe I found the Lego loophole, and thanks to the folks that have donated to this show and others using podcasting 2.0 ways, which means over the lightning network, I have some lightning and I was able to turn that into gift cards. I think I may have talked about that before, but there was no Lego gift cards. I was mad. I went to the place and normally I just get Amazon gift cards because that's where we do a majority of our online shopping. And I'm able to turn that cryptocurrency 
into an Amazon gift card and everything just works. And I looked it up and I'm like, oh, damn it. Lego is not on the list for the gift cards. So I can't turn in my value for value streaming Satoshis for Lego gift card. But then I had an idea and I went to Amazon because I know Amazon has everything. And I know I can turn in the crypto quite easily for Amazon gift cards. And sure enough, you can buy Lego gift cards delivered electronically within minutes from Amazon. So this is a great deal. I turned in some of my streaming Satoshis for an Amazon gift card. And then I bought a Lego gift card from Amazon. And the beauty of this is for those of you that maybe like to buy Lego, but you don't have the streaming Satoshis, here's the thing. A lot of people want to buy things directly from Lego because they give extra bonus stuff. There was like three or four different bonus things they're giving right now because of the Star Wars stuff. There's like, you know, little sets and stuff that they throw in that are just a few pieces, but then they're collectible because you can only get them free with purchase. You can't buy them, which is what keeps people buying directly from Lego. And they give you points so you can come back and get some money off of what you're buying the next time around. But it's very rare to be able to get any kind of discount on Lego. Well, I realized by buying a gift card for Lego through Amazon, if you are an Amazon Prime member and you have their credit card, which I do, it will give you 5% off. So if you go buy a $100 gift card for Lego on Amazon and it will be delivered to your email account within like five minutes, you will get 5% off back on your Amazon credit card. So you're getting like 5% off something you can't do on Lego, and then you still get to go get all of the extras and free gifts with purchase and everything they get. So if you're an Amazon Prime member and you buy a lot of stuff through the Lego store, lego.com, or the Lego store in person, either way, you can buy the gift cards right on Amazon. Where else are you going to get these kind of tips? But here on the Random Thoughts podcast, this is a value for value podcast, which means I put them out there. They're not behind a paywall. You get to decide if you have gotten any value out of the show whatsoever. If you do, it's up to you to put a number on that. Is it worth a latte? Is it worth a vinyl album? Is it worth a massive Star Wars Lego set? And my goodness, are Legos expensive? Although so are vinyl records right now, to be fair. But you get to put that value on it and go over to our website, randomthoughts.com, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com slash donate. You can click the donate button to do a one-time or monthly donation through PayPal. You can use the QR codes or wallet addresses if you want to do the crypto thing. You can use the P.O. box address if you want to entrust it to Uncle Sam, who there's some vinyl that went into the mail system last week on Monday, just an hour away from here, and I still haven't gotten it. Thanks, Uncle Sam. Or you can use the podcasting 2.0 way. Go to newpodcastapps.com. Then I can take those Satoshis and turn them into Amazon gift cards. And then I can turn them into Lego gift cards. And then they can become worthless plastic pieces that my wife will put together and say are awesome. And if you're in the Patreon ecosystem, you can go to patreon.com slash random thoughts, R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts. And there's nothing extra there right now. But if you're in that ecosystem, 
it makes it easy to do. For today's show, I want to thank our buddy Stu Coates from the UK coming in with the totally maybe kind of satanic donation of $6.66. It's very much appreciated. Our buddy Sir Truck Driver coming in with his monthly $5 or more. I mean, there's always something coming in from Sir Truck Driver. We wish you well out there on the roads where things can get just a little bit crazy. And then coming in over on Patreon, Dennis Woods with five bucks, Tim Heasel with five bucks. It is greatly appreciated, as is Jarhead946 coming in with the 8008 Satoshis, which is the boobs donation made famous on the No Agenda podcast, which is about uh, two and a quarter right now in real money. And that is appreciated because then I can turn that right into Lego. He says, hey, Darren, just got around to listening to this. Great content as always. Well, thank you for listening, Jarhead, and thanks to everybody for listening and supporting the show any way you can. I understand Joey's economy is not that great right now. And if you don't have the cash to come in to support the show financially, tell a friend, leave a review, do something to help us get a little bit more FaceTime out there. It all helps help the show grow. And hopefully with more people growing, the more fun we can have right here on Random Thoughts. And hopefully I continue to bring value if you think that I haven't been, or if there's something different you want to hear, feel free to reach out to me, Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N at randomthoughts.com, or you can get me on Twitter, Darren O'Neill, D-A-R-R-E-N-O-N-E-I-L-L, spelled the same way, at noagendasocial.com. If you use Mastodon, let me know what you think, and I will be back again next week for another edition of the Random Thoughts Podcast. Until then, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening. 